Welcome to Brain and Avat. We are delighted to be joined by Alex Byrne, and we're going to be talking about sex and gender. Alex, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Uh, so this is a real thought experiment in the sense that the questions I'm going to give you were asked of ordinary people by some psychologists. Uh, I think the relevant paper is 2016, so not that long ago. Okay, so the first question is about reincarnation. So let's pretend that reincarnation happens. And further, you have a choice of what sex to be in your next life. So what would what would you choose? I would switch just because I think it would be interesting to know what it would be like. And Jason? Uh, I think I'd stick. So then the next question is, how many of the participants chose Mark's answer, would you say? I'm willing to guess that it was similar to this sample size of two, that half the people were willing to switch. I'd say 40% switched. It was 30%. What if you could switch sexes for one day with nobody knowing, where at the end of the day, you switch back? Would you take that opportunity? I would. Uh, the commitment of a lifetime, as Mark yes, says, is too yeah. much. Okay. But the commitment yeah. for a day, let's say I would to do it alone in my living room and no one knew, no commitment involved, and yeah. assuming it's reversible, I think I would do it, and I think most people would be curious enough to do it. So yeah, I'd say and like obviously, ninety percent would say yes. Mark, do you have a an estimated figure for the number of people in this particular study who said that they would do it for a day? Yeah, I would think that given the lack of serious commitment, that the numbers would go up quite significantly. It was sixty-seven percent for the day, so thirty percent for the lifetime, sixty-seven percent for the day. Here's another, perhaps more interesting question. Did these percentages significantly differ between men and women? My guess would be that men would be less likely to do it. Right. Women would be more likely. That's my guess. Isn't the obvious answer and that women would be upgrading so that it makes sense for them to make the change? In fact, there wasn't a significant difference. And people were asked, why did you choose as you did? Why did you choose to switch? And people often gave answers very much like Mark. That, yeah, it would just be interesting. I'm curious, what would it be like to live as the other sex? And this is, this is relevant because some people think that by questions such as these, you can bring out or expose the fact that everyone has a gender identity thought of as some deep fundamental attachment to being a certain sex. And indeed, some people have thought if you ask these questions, then almost nobody will, will want to switch, which just indicates the very deep attachment we have to our sex selves, if you like. It's a bit like, I mean, suppose I was asked, I have a son, Griffin. Suppose I was asked, okay, so there's reincarnation and I have to select my son in the next life. It could be Griffin or it could be someone else. Either way, Griffin is around in the next life. The question is whether he is like Fred's son or my son. And I think I would automatically go for Griffin. I think, yeah, this, it would be utterly miserable in a way or bad if I lived my next life with Another son, not Griffin, offered the choice. I would much prefer Griffin. And that's a way of bringing out the extreme, perhaps irrational attachment I have to uh, to Griffin the person. And some people think it's it's somewhat analogous for, for gender identity. But at any rate, the point is that by this test, if you actually ask people the appropriate questions, they don't seem to give the answer that the fans of gender identity would predict. So let's explore this position that the gender identity proponent has. So I'm going to try and defend it. Yeah. It's not my view, but I'm going to try. Okay. So the view is that gender is intrinsically very important to someone. It's crucial to who they are. It's not just their gender identity, but formative of their general identity. So much so that they would not want to change it because it's who they are. Yeah. Perhaps one way of saying, of them arguing is that there's a problem with a thought experiment at least in the case where you're changing for a day privately. The reincarnation case is more interesting, but at least in the case where you're changing for a day privately, people don't know about the change. 
And they might say that gender and sex are socially constructed. And so in order for it to really be the change, it would need to be acknowledged by the people around you. And the people around you would need to see that you've changed your gender and sex and acknowledge you as this new gender or sex. And only then have you actually changed. And so when you change privately in your living room, you haven't actually changed. And that's why we don't mind doing so. So there are a number of bits of terminology there that perhaps we could talk about at some point. One is this tricky word, gender. Another is the idea of social construction. But if we suppose that recognition by others is crucial for you to, let's say, be a man or a woman in the first place, you couldn't be a woman stuck alone on some desert island with no one to recognize you as a woman and no associated gendered practices which treat men and women differently or something like that. Maybe it's a bit like you couldn't be a wife on some desert island in order to be a wife. You have to have a husband. And indeed, it can't just be the two of you. There has to be some significant society with the social practice of marriage. If it was like that, couldn't we get around it by saying, it's not just that the, that everything goes on privately in your living room, but you stride out into the world as a woman and you're recognized as a woman, treated as a woman. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you see a woman and, and so forth. And that's what everyone else sees. Wouldn't that be enough? Even but on the most extreme version of the view you're suggesting? But then I think the intuition changes. So then the percentage of people who'd be willing to do that goes down, I assume. So I assume that then it won't be 67% say, I'll do that. Then I imagine it would be much lower, maybe below the 30%, maybe 20 or 10% would say, then I'll do it if I have to walk out of my living room and everyone acknowledges me. The crucial thing is that no one knows that you have changed. Is that really what you're worried about? It's rather that you can go out into the world as a woman and no one will suspect anything. No one will think that it's Jason, that they'll just think it's some woman called Julia who has marched into the neighborhood for some reason or has turned up at work for some reason. So it seems crucial whether I'm the same person post-change in other people's eyes and metaphysically whether I'm the same person. So is it that... I leave my apartment door and my neighbor forms the thought there is a new person or a guest living in Jason's apartment or does my neighbor form the thought Jason has changed into a woman now, Jason's now Julia. That distinction seems very important. And I, okay. take, it that, yeah. I take it that when we think of other people seeing us as changing rather than a new person replacing us and not realizing that there has been a change, then we're not as reluctant to make the change. But when other people will see us as having changed, that changes our whole identity. And we Yes, I quite agree that there's obviously a big difference between a situation in which I have changed from a man to a woman for a day and everyone knows that I have. It's like scratching their heads, wondering if I'll change back or how to react to me and so on. And a situation in which I change, but no one notices it. I think the idea, and I'm pretty sure this is the way people who were asked the question interpreted it, is that it's really a third option. It's neither of the first two options you, you mentioned. In the day case, you've been turned into Julia, and like your neighbor doesn't notice you leaving your apartment or anything like that. Okay, so now you're Julia, you just take the subway into the big city, walk around, go to the stores, have dinner strike up conversations with people on the bus or something like that, or maybe go to a woman's spa or whatever. And there's, there's just no question that anyone will think either that this is Jason or that, oh, there's some strange woman living in Jason's apartment. So I've got a couple of thoughts. The one is it seems like people's preferences for changing sex shift depending on a couple of contextual factors. The one is can I don it on like a disguise or as an experiment temporarily, in which case seem, people seem more keen to try that out. I would imagine that if you said to someone, right now, would you change your sex? We'll give you an operation, you will change sex. And it's not reversible. It is what it is in the real world. 
then that number drips dramatically because it comes with a sense of maybe my past current identity ceases to exist. Mark will be no more. Mary will be birthed. This might have a strong effect on my relationships and other people will view me. Some people might have a preference for that change. So they would like to be Maria. And so this is an opportunity to become Maria. Also seems to me that there's a difference between someone who wants to appear to the world as their opposite sex for some kind of reason. So you can imagine someone who passes. There's a case of a, I think it's a French woman who dressed up like a man to blend in during the Second World War with men. She wanted to, to pass as a man, not because she saw herself as a man or saw herself as trans, but that it was a useful disguise. And it seems like that person hasn't changed their sex, but is viewed as if they had. And that seems like a different kind of category. So I wonder what you think's going on in, let's say, the person who hasn't changed their internal beliefs about themselves, but wants others to change their beliefs about who they are, versus someone who has, let's say, an internal belief that doesn't accord with how they're externally perceived, and therefore wants to undergo some kind of procedure to change that, and whether it's possible for them to have the change, either in terms of sex or gender. Yeah, so on the first kind of case, of course, you're, you're right that there have been many cases, typically of, of women living as men for employment opportunities, often, or alternatively, romantic opportunities. So in the 19th century, there were these two lesbians couldn't get married. There was this phenomenon uh, known as female husbands, where two lesbians would get married, but one of them would be playing the role of a man, fooling everyone. It's not particularly plausible, at least in, in, in many of these cases, that the female husband had gender dysphoria in the medical sense, uh, profound distress, at one's sexed body and social social expectations, but rather that it's just a case of a lesbian who loves a, another woman, wants to get married, and the only possibility of doing that is to fool everyone into thinking that you're a man. Another very famous case also from the 19th century is the British Army surgeon, British Army surgeon James Barry, who was born Margaret Ann Bulkley. And this was at a time when women could not be admitted to medical school. So she went to medical school as James Barry and did extremely well as a doctor and rose to a position of prominence in the army as some kind of medical surgeon and tra traveled all over the world. Uh, it's clear to the authors that Barry did this just for the employment opportunities, and then her sex was discovered only, only posthumously. So that's another kind of case. The first case was where you change your, your sex of living. I find that phrase useful, your sex of living for romantic reasons. The other uh, case is one where you change your sex of living for the increased employment opportunities. And then there are these other cases which are quite different where someone is extremely dissatisfied and uncomfortable with their sexed body and the associated uh, social expectations which go with having a body of that kind and wants to either be regarded as a member of the other sex and or wants to change her body to approximate to more closely approximate the body of the other sex. These are very different. These are very different things. I think you had a sort of follow-up question about the second case. Yeah, so I suppose what I'm wondering about, it seems like we accept there's a distinction between those two categories of people, the one who's trying to pass for an ulterior motive, which might be a praiseworthy motive in the social context, and the person who wants to change and whether it's possible for them to do that. So it seems like there's a couple of ways in which it could go. The one is the term that now seems to have fallen out of vogue, but strikes me as one that's still useful to talk about is someone who's transsexual. In other words, they change their sex through a medical procedure. You try 
as hard as you can to look like someone of the opposite sex through hormones, through therapy, through speech training, all of that sort of stuff. Now you have changed your sex or at least have attempted to. And then the other one would be, let's say, the transgender case where I say, well, it's not actually about changing your sex. Sex and gender are different things. And I can, as someone who is male, proclaim myself a woman. And maybe I need to conform to whatever the beliefs are in my society about what women do. So I need to start pushing a pram or being kind to people or whatever social attitudes you think stick with a woman. But I don't need to change my appearance and I don't need to change any of my, any of my hormones to do this. I can just, through the act of proclamation, say I have changed. Yeah, that, the, there's certainly a distinction there. I completely agree that transsexual is a very useful word. I don't want to encourage its continued fall into disuse. So I'm very happy using it. But in but I wonder if there's that much of a difference between the two cases that you describe. If we agree that the starting position in both cases is that the person is, you might disagree with this, but let's, for the sake of the argument, let's just agree that the starting position, the initial position in both cases is that the person is a man and is male. And now there's the end state. The, what are we aiming for? We're aiming in both cases to to turn from a man into a woman. And you've just got two theories of how you can of how you can do that. So one is if you have a certain kind of surgery and take appropriate hormones, then that will do it. And then another theory is if you act in a certain way or make certain sorts of proclamations or declarations, or maybe if you configure your psychology in a certain way, then that will do it. And those are just two, two theories of how you could affect the change. So can we knuckle you down to a position though? Um, oh, sure. Yes. Can we try to get you to master your place your flag on one of these polls. So what is your position on whether gender and sex are the same thing and what is required for a transition okay, if a transition excellent. is possible okay. at all? Okay, excellent. Of course, it all depends what you mean by gender. If you mean by gender, the amount of masculinity and femininity found in a person. Okay, if that's what you meant by gender, then of course, sex and gender are distinct. But there's another sense of gender on which it just is a synonym for sex, i.e. male and female. And on in that sense of gender, of course, sex and gender are one. They are not distinct at all. And I think that nothing but confusion comes from using gender in a sense other than the sex sense. So I think gender is actually a useful word. You should always use, use it to mean sex. It's useful because sex itself is ambiguous, of course, between getting it on and being male and female. And gender usefully disambiguates sex because you, can't, you can never use gender to mean getting it on, but you can use it to mean male and female. So you should always use it to mean male and female. Now, if you want to talk about something else, which people sometimes use the word gender, for example, gender identity, just use the word gender identity or the phrase gender identity. If you want to talk about masculinity and femininity, don't use the word gender, just talk about masculinity and femininity. If you want to talk about the social roles that males and females are expect expected to play in a certain society, don't talk about gender, just talk about, use the phrase gender roles or something like that. So I think that's that's a policy that can only bring clarity to the discussion. Okay, so just on the on the issue of whether human beings could actually change sex. Now, of course, there are animals which can change sex, like the fabled clownfish, for example. They all start life as as male, and then some of them can switch to female. No mammals do that. And the process, the basic process, what has to happen in order for an animal to change sex is quite well understood. Nothing like that happens in humans, obviously, as a just in the general course of nature. And present medical interventions don't come close to making that happen. So my answer is human beings, all mammals, do not and cannot change 
sex. Okay, so then what about woman and man and boy and girl? Okay, now my apparently controversial view, a necessary condition for being a woman is being female and a necessary condition for being a man is being male. You can't be a man without being male. You can't be a woman without being female. Okay, so it just follows from that, given what I said earlier about it not being possible for human beings to change sex, that it's not possible to change from a woman to a man or vice versa. Which is, of course, not to say, it is by no means to say that people with gender dysphoria shouldn't transition. That would be like completely insane. The whole, the point of transitioning, or at least if we're talking about like old school transsexuals, the point of transitioning is to bring relief from the distress of gender dysphoria. And that can work even though you haven't literally changed sex or literally changed from being a man to a woman. So it's an interesting addendum that, and it makes the view a bit more nuanced than I think maybe your critics suggest that your view is. I think a second question I have is what would be involved? You said it's well known what is involved biologically in the clownfish changing sex. What would be involved for a human to change sex? What would be required? And you said one day we might be able to, what, what yeah. would be necessary? Okay, the standard biological account of sex is at a first pass, males, the organisms who produce small sex cells, gametes, sperm, and females are the organisms who produce large sex cells, large gametes, eggs. And of course, you've got to qualify this some somewhat because there are males and females that don't, in fact, and indeed are not even capable of producing any, any gametes. But that is the standard account that you'll find in like many textbooks and many popular accounts. Okay, so then what happens in in the case of a sex-changing fish, a fish that changes from being male to being female, is that its internal reproductive structures change. It goes from being a small gamete producer to being a large gamete producer. So I want to give two cases. The one is one we've already touched on, which is the idea that you can have husbands who are female. The other one is you can imagine that I've got a female friend and we go watch rugby together and we go to pubs together and drink lagers and sing boisterous songs. And all my friends say, Jackie is one of the boys. That seems like pretty common usage to say that one of the boys can include people who are female. Now, there we might also say that the tendency with husband and boys is that most members of those labels are going to be males, but it's not necessary for the term. And so you might make the claim that when we talk about women, that in general, this refers to people who are females, but not in all cases. So we could say just how there's some fuzzy areas on the priority terms, there could be fuzzy cases with the term woman. Why not admit of that case. It seems that it's commonly used in language that there are people who are male, who are referred to as women by their friends, by the New York Times, they're called she, and that the usage becomes more and more prevalent. Maybe it was the case at one point in time that husband only ever referred to men who were married to women, but we know that's changed. You give a good example yourself, and we now have husbands who are biological males who are married to men. The the usage changes over time. So why not admit that for the woman case? That's question one. Question two is a case that you give in one of your papers of a person who is born with, you become a fictional syndrome, which is complete asexual syndrome. So they have no gametes whatsoever, but over time they develop to look like a female. They develop breasts, the facial features of a female, let's say they dress and behave like women do. Everybody assumes that they are both female and a woman. And your conclusion is that the correct thing to do would be to refer to this kind of person as a woman. 
once they are fully grown. Even though they don't have the biological traits of being women, we can assume that they don't have the X chromosome either. But for all practical purposes, they believe themselves to be a woman, they appear as a woman, they're treated like a woman, and you want to make the claim, we should include them in that category. So I, I wonder how you deal with both of those cases. Okay, very good. So on the first case, so you weren't thinking of of a transgender person, you were just thinking of your friend, Julie, who goes out drinking with you, does various manly things, is treated as one of the boys. So I don't know, maybe you have a stag night and because Julie is just treated as a, as one of the lads, you invite her to your stag night. She's okay. But then it would be very odd if you asked, oh, sorry, if I asked you how many men were at your stag night, I suppose there were like 10 people at your stag night. And I asked you how many men, or oh, sorry, if I asked you, were only men at your stag night? Of course, the answer is no, this is Julie, who's a woman. There's no like context in which you could point to Julie and say, truly, she is a man, even in the... Uh, unless it was like clear that you just meant she's an honorary man or for the purposes of this party or something, she's, she's a man. So I'm not... Or again, if you ask Julie afterwards or something when she come back from the stag night, was there like any sense last night in which you actually were a man or something like that? Or suppose someone had mistake, mistakenly... Sorry, not mistakenly. Suppose someone had actually, not realising what was going on, had, had called her a man... It, when you were all getting totally wasted at your stag night, I would have thought Julie could have stepped in at that point and corrected this person. But that's where the difficulty lies, in that Julie can say, I am female and I'm one of the boys. That's right. And so the, the that fact right. that the two can come apart shows the difficulty, right? And you could imagine that the usage, one of the boys, which I think we're all comfortable with, or one of the guys, could be to say, Julie is the manliest female that I know. That also seems to make sense. And so at some point, you that could imagine, totally, yeah. I am one of the men. I'm manly, like the men. And if we, once we know what it is we're referring to, because I accept, of course, that when we say men, we almost always mean male. Um, barring some exceptions. When we talk about boys, we generally mean males, but sometimes we mean females. And so women could be like one of those terms. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, of course, one of, the, one of the boys, that is an expression that usually means the person is just viewed as or regarded for certain social purposes as a man, but in order to, to do that, you don't have to literally be a man or a lad. So let me switch, let me switch examples. So you remember that pathologist, Con Conrad Lorenz, who made, I think he made some important discoveries about how ducklings imprint on their mothers. And so he got all these ducklings to imprint on him. And I think you can find various photographs of the ducklings following Conrad Lorenz around. So you can say he was like one of the ducks, basically. He really he did become one of the ducks. He was like a member of the group of ducks. All the other ducks treated him like ducks and so on. But of course, he didn't literally, there's no sense in which he was literally a duck. So I think it's a bit like that. Let me just switch to the other example. So, th so this was in the context of a potential counterexample to the thesis that to be a woman is just to be an adult female of our species, an adult human female. So the purported counterexample was someone who looked exactly like a woman, but had, but in fact had no no sex at all. Right. It was it was completely asexual in some technical sense. There's no differentiation of the primordial gonad in utero into ovaries that's what happens if you go down the female path pathway and there was no differentiation either into the 
testes, which is what happens when you go down the male pathway. Instead, the primordial gonads just dissolve. And I think on the the stand, and of course, this is very much a science fictional case, but on the standard view of sex, this person would end up being asexual in the sense of not having a sex at all. And then we further suppose that the person, at least from the outside, looks exactly like an ordinary female, undergoes what appears to be a typical female puberty, thinks of herself as a woman, nothing nothing is noticed in this person's life. It's as if she's just an ordinary female. Of course, she turns out to be sterile, incapable of having children, but so do many perfectly ordinary women. Okay, so if this person is a woman, then we have a, a counterexample. We have someone who's a woman, but who is not female. So it's a counterexample of the claim that being female is a necessary condition for being a woman. And so I, on my official view, this person is, is not a woman, right? Is actually not a woman. I think you said maybe on my view that she was. Of course, this is another way of bringing out the point that these metaphysical claims about what it is to be a woman or a man should be sharply separated from claims about how people should be treated or how society should be organized. Because in the let's just suppose for the sake of the argument that this complete asexual person is not a woman, obviously it would be crazy to argue that this person should not be treated in every way as a woman. That would just be like nuts. So that's so in fact you could even use that example to to show that uh, these two things absolutely have to come apart in, in in some cases. Sometimes the women, a genuine woman should not be treated as a woman. Sometimes a genuine non-woman should be nonetheless tre treated as a woman. Anyway, yeah, so in the, in, so in the paper, I, I do two things, I, I, as I seem to recall. First of all, I try to explain away the intuition, if indeed you have such an intuition, that this person is a woman despite not being female. And I do that by basically saying, look, she's much closer to the stereotype of a woman. She's not at all close to the stereotype of a female, because as soon as you start bringing sex terms like female and, and male into the discussion, then, as it were, the mind naturally turns to genitalia, reproductive structures. And this person doesn't have female re reproductive structures. But when you say, when you instead use terms like women, then the stereotype is somewhat different. And the complete asexual person fits the woman's stereotype much better than she fits the human adult female stereotype, if you like, even though to me, being a woman and being an adult human female are the same thing. Anyway, that's the first point I make. And then the second point is that even if you thought that this person was a woman, this doesn't really take you any distance away from the general view that to be a woman is to be of a certain biological type. You just need to tweak the biological type a bit. It doesn't move you any closer, if you think the matter through, it doesn't move you any closer to the traditional view, often associated with Simone de Beauvoir, that to be a woman is to occupy a certain social position in a society. I want to float a position by you, and I'd like to know why you think this position is worse than your position. Mm. So the reason for floating this position is that I along with probably every other Western human on this planet, come across a lot of little snippets on social media where someone is very loudly and proudly proclaiming something about gender or sex. Let's just limit the discussion to sex. There's lots of proponents now of the view that, similar to yours, I think, that a woman is an adult human female, and someone will proclaim that, and then someone else will stand up and proclaim that a woman is what they feel internally. It's a person who feels that they're a woman. Someone else will say that a woman is someone with a certain set of chromosomes. Another person will say a woman is X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Yeah. But 
my question is why prefer one rather than the other definition? And so the view that I want to float is that sex is context dependent. So if you're going to a reproductive doctor who's trying to work out your best way of reproducing, it seems like the gametes that you produce are very important for that discussion. And if I was born into a body that produced sperm, no matter how many lifestyle changes I make, let's say I I have surgery so that I have breasts, I have surgery so that I have a vagina, I have surgery so that I lose my Adam's apple, I go to, I, I have hormone replacements, and all of these steps to outwardly appear as a woman, and perhaps internally, I also feel that I'm a woman. It seems that when I go to that reprodu reproductive doctor, and I'm trying to work out whether I'm able to have children, it will be important that I'm the type of being that produces sperm, not the type of being that produces eggs. Right. And so in that context, your definition would be absolutely right. But in a different context, it might not be relevant. So in a different context, it seems irrelevant whether I produce sperm or not. If the context is, for example, if I'm going to the, in South Africa, we call it home affairs. I'm not sure what you call it in the UK. It's our government institution that hands out passports and IDs. Where I'm going to that office, it seems more relevant how I and the people around me identify me than whether I produce sperm or not for whether I'm marked as male or female on yeah. my passport. And in another context, if I form a relationship with someone who sees me as female, who treats me as female, who may never have known that I was born into a body that produced sperm, it seems more relevant that my sex is female. So I'm suggesting that sex is a contextual concept and that the account of sex depends on the, on the context. And isn't that a better representation of how we as a society see sex than a firm view on whether sex is about the gametes that you produce, it's determined by the gametes that you produce, or sex is an internal sense, or sex is, is the body that you have outwardly. Surely all of these definitions are best within a context rather than best full stop. I think someone... I mean, by now, almost every position in logical space on these issues has been occupied by someone or another. And I'm sure that sex contextualism is one of them. If it isn't, it certainly ought to be. You should be writing a paper on this topic. So this would be the view that words like male and female are context dependent. And in some contexts, they pick out biological sex as in the context of the doctor's office or the context of, I don't know, you're going on safari or something and you might point out that this lion and Mark are both male. And then there are these other contexts, these more social contexts, maybe one in which official documentation is particularly salient. In that case, female picks out some, something else. But I would have, one would need to see this spelt out. Put it this way, something very close to this position is, I think, correct in that it depends on the jurisdiction. But certainly in some jurisdictions, the idea of someone being legally female makes perfectly good sense. So roughly to be legally female is to have the F marker on a whole bunch of official documents and to be treated by the law in all sorts of circumstances as female. Okay, so I just explained what it is to be legally female. Crucially, I explained what it is to be legally female in, in terms that just presuppose the biological account of, of female. And, but I would have th thought that if I'm legally female and and I have an F on my on my driver's license, then in in sort of normal context, the right thing to say is actually Alex isn't female, he's male, but for various reasons he has become legally female. Like there's no context in which it's correct to say Alex is not male, he is female, and just just leave it like that. Whereas the on I think the, on on the view you're suggesting, if the context is right, then it would just be absolutely correct. If someone said Alex is male, 
in an appropriate context, then the true, then the correct response would be no, he, no, she isn't, she is female. And I'm offhand somewhat suspicious that there, that there are such contexts. But yeah, I see the, yeah, this is a, a position that, that you could defend. It would it, it, put it this way: this would not satisfy very many people, because if you don't want to say that a trans man is female, or if you want to say that a, sorry, let me put it another way: if you want to say that a trans man is male, you want to just be able to say that in every context. You don't want there to be contexts in which. This trans man, or like Ellen Page, say Ellen Page is female. You don't want that to be true, like in any context. You want Ellen Page to be ma- is male to be true in every context. And then further, on your proposal, there are going to be some contexts in which it's true to say that Alex is female, even though in this particular situation, I'm not transgender or transsexual or anything like that. I've just for some strange reason decided to disguise myself as a as a woman or just to live as a woman for some kind of experiment not to relieve gender i'm not in any sense trans but nonetheless i've you know got an f on my driver's license and an f on my passport and i've become le- and become legally female and uh, yeah. you know, and the, and i would thought that is not acceptable either i'm aware that this view would satisfy nobody but yeah. that's because i think nobody's correct yeah. so I just, I feel like on, on every view of sex that I've come across, there's obvious counterexamples. But what is the so, obvious counter, sorry to interrupt, but what is the obvious counterexample in the, to my view on, on, on which male and sorry. female, just in any context, I don't think there's, an, there's another sense of male and female on which, say, Ellen Page is male. So it just strikes me that your view won't capture our intuitions in certain cases. So the kind of cases that I have in mind are cases where someone has a very strong internal sense that they are a certain sex. I'm not saying that's coherent. Okay. So I'm not saying that that person has content to that, that feeling that I can clearly explicate. And I think the critics of that view are strong. The criticisms are strong. So when Let's say I have the strong internal feeling that I'm a woman and I express that, I think you can validly, or I think you can soundly criticize that by saying something like, so what do you mean? You have the sense that you're a woman and I don't think I'd be able to give a good answer. But nevertheless, it feels like there's something going on there that isn't well explained by your view. Um, It also seems to me like in certain contexts, we just don't think gametes are what matter. I I think on your view, sex is discovered right? It was discovered when we discovered gametes. Before we we knew about gametes, we hadn't discovered what sex was. And that's weird to me. It seems we were able to pick up men and women before we discovered gametes. And we were able to do so successfully in a way that didn't seem to be significantly altered by the discovery of gametes. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Yeah, that is absolutely right. Of course, when I think I've I've seen this on on Twitter <laughs> that when people are trying to argue against this view, they always focus on 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 gay meets and say we yeah we don't care about gay meets or you don't go around asking people what kind of gay meets they produce and you can tell whether someone is a man or a woman without examining their gay meets under a microscope or anything like that. And of course, all that is true, but the view doesn't imply anything like those absurdities you're right you're absolutely right on on my view it was discovered in around about the 19th century that there's this constitutive connection between being male and producing small gametes and being female and producing large gametes and it's a little bit tricky to to spell out exactly what the connection is but at any rate um, we discovered something about the essence of maleness and femaleness in around r- around the 19th century. And, of course, that is compatible with human beings having talked about males and females 
forever. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and people before them all talked about males, males and females. And many, many, although it's certainly interestingly not all, but many human languages spoken thousands of years ago have words for which translate as male and female. And, but in that respect, it's just to take the philosopher's hoary old example, water. So Plato, Thales, let's say, yeah, Thales, the guy who thought everything was made of water, talked a lot about water in one perfectly good sense. He knew what water was. He could identify water. He knew a whole bunch of things about the properties of water. He was like mistaken that water is the basis of everything. But he had a lot of true beliefs about water. If he wanted a glass of water, then Thales would be a great person to ask. Bring me a glass of water. It's very unlikely he'll bring you a cup of wine, bring you a glass of not entirely pure, but mostly pure water. But then, of course, at least according to the standard Kripkean story, later we discovered something about what water is. It's composed of molecules consisting of two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen. But of course, that didn't really, that didn't change our practice of giving people glasses of water or selling water in the store, although sometimes, of course, bottles of water actually have H2O marked on them. But you don't tell whether something is water in ordinary life by subjecting it to some kind of chemical analysis that shows that it contains hydrogen and oxygen, even though, on the, at least on the standard philosophical story that most philosophers accept in one form or another, there is this constitutive connection between being water and being composed of hydrogen and being composed of oxygen. So it's just like that. It's just like that in the in in the case of sex, I think. Yeah. So you're so the game eats in a way almost irrelevant to 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 daily life, although in a sense they're extremely relevant when it comes when it comes to making babies, because you have to have the right kinds in order to make babies. But in just like everyday life, IDing people as men or women or as boys or girls, of course, gay meats are just totally irrelevant in the way that hydrogen and oxygen are totally irrelevant when you ask someone for a glass of water. So I want to know what you make of the slogan, trans woman or woman. It seems like it could be interpreted in a couple of ways. The one is that trans women are females. Two, that they occupy the social role that females tend to occupy, so women in that social sense. Three, that we ought to act as if they are women, that we ought to use pronouns like she, that we it's a kind thing to do to treat trans women as if they were women, but it doesn't make any acknowledgement about the metaphysics. This is always an awkward case. Non-binary people are probably valid or something like that but no one ever says non-binary people are neither men nor women which you would have thought would have been the natural thing to say but anyway yeah so these were the slogans and there is some issue about how they are to be interpreted so you gave two as it were factual or descriptive interpretations trying I don't know whether you were suggesting that, okay, maybe the word woman is ambiguous or polysimous as between an adult human female interpretation and a more social interpretation. If it is polysimous in this way, which I don't believe, then of course the slogan would have two interpretations and then the issue would be which one of those was, was intended. Or maybe, maybe you were saying, look, on one view of the meaning of woman, trans women are women is only true if trans women are female. And maybe this, this, that sounds a bit dodgy. So the, on that interpretation, the slogan is false. Another view, much more common among contemporary feminist philosophers, is that woman picks out a certain kind of social position, in which case, even here, it's typically not true that all trans women would be women on on, on this view, but at least some of them would be. So we we have a sort of we have a sort of partial victory in that case, and then the third, more interesting, perhaps interpretation, 
is that you're not making a you're not making a factual straightforward factual descriptive claim at all instead you're expressing your approval of the idea that we should just treat trans women exactly as if they they are women because this is like the kind and compassionate thing to do now i think it is clear that that slogan means the sorry has is to be interpreted as a descriptive claim it's a straightforward descriptive claim and my reason for that is that numerous people treat it as a descriptive claim and offer counter either either offer counterexamples to it or start arguing against the people who have offered counterexamples to it for example a number of feminist philosophers who surely understand language as well as anyone clearly think they could not be more explicit that this is a factual claim it's not like some recommendation to treat people one way rather than another indeed you could you could this is in a way one of my i think this is an important point to make you could accept that trans women are women and think well there are kind of special kind of women sorry there are special kind of woman so special in fact that in some circumstances they should be prohibited from entering sporting competitions open to female that's a perfectly coherent position to the truth of the slogan trans women are women is neither necessary nor sufficient for social policies which include trans women from this or exclude trans women from the other thing but anyway it, there are numerous examples where it's completely clear that this slogan is in, is interpreted descriptively so at the very least we should say that if people like stonewall had something else in mind had the more sort of expressive interpretation in mind oh really all i was get, trying to get across is that they should be treated as women in every in every social context it was an extraordinarily misleading way of of making the point and they should have found some other way of expressing it yeah so i think it would really be a nice a nice sort of ecumenical resolution if it if that third interpretation turned out to be right because then the issue just wouldn't be as i think in a way it isn't the issue then wouldn't turn on this metaphysical claim about what what women are but in fact it has turned out uh, to be the crux of the issue in 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 many people's minds on that note you had written a book for oxford university press on this question and it's been quite widely published in your article in Quillette and picked up by Brian Leiter and picked up on the Daily News that Oxford University Press very late in the day refused to publish the book and this right. seems strange as you say for a question that 20 years ago would have been viewed as a rather banal question under conditions when you've written a 100,000 word book and where it pains to point out that you'd engage with literature as much as humanly possible can you give us a bit of a sense of how that controversy is playing out and what your sense is of the philosophical landscape? It worries me that certain ideas are viewed as being unpublishable when they are written in a manner that abides by all the usual academic norms. And the question is, if this is unpublishable, what's next? What are the other ideas that we can say are beyond the pale and no one should tolerate? Yeah, for start, I should just clarify the, the book, um, this one ch chapter of the book, which is about uh, the most Im important question of the age, what is a woman? But there are other chapters about gender identity and sex and gender and the true self and patriarchy and sex differences and so on. And it's not a, a technical book for philosophers. It always was supposed to be a trade book written for the general public, since obviously there's a huge amount of interest in in all this and I thought I'd written by the time I proposed the book I'd written a fair number of pieces on on the topic and I thought I had something useful to say and certain mistakes in the media get repeated again and again and if philosophers are good at anything it's making the appropriate distinctions and and being clear so I thought I had something to contribute in that regard and in any case 
questions of sex are perennially fascinating and they certainly fascinate me. So I was very keen on, on writing this book and I had a, I'd published with Oxford University Press before, I have a book on self-knowledge with OUP and that was a great experience. And I had a contract from OUP. They said they would promote it as a, as a trade book, not as a scholarly monograph. So it's not, even though there's some philosophy in it, it's not written in a way that presupposes any philosophical knowledge on behalf of the reader. And so I wrote a draft, which was more than 100,000 words, and submitted it to OUP. And I was expecting to get referee reports, which I would then respond to, fix up the draft, and there would be some toing and froing and haggling over the content, and then it would be and then it would be published. And as you said, OUP decided not to publish it. And the official reason given was that it didn't treat the subject in a suitably respectful and serious way. And this was, you will see when the book comes out whether I treat the subject in a suitably respectful and serious way. But I think that, I mean, I suspect that they gave that as a reason because it's very hard to push back against because it's a reason that just, this is my impression of the whole book. It doesn't really treat the subject in a sufficiently respectful way. There's nothing you can fix up. Whereas if there had been, if they had said, I think you're the argument in the woman chapter for the claim that to be a woman is to be another human female is like fatally flawed, as this referee has pointed out. Then, of course, you can always go back and fix things up and change the argument or change the conclusion or whatever. So they didn't say anything about the the argumentative content of the book or the claims that were made in the book or anything like that. Instead, it was all about tone. And my editor at OUP had made some useful suggestions. The irony is my editor at OUP had made some often quite useful suggestions about tone, very minor things, really very minor things, nothing serious. When I sent over an early version of the introduction of the first chapter, those are the two chapters where there might be some issues of tone. The first chapter talks about Kathleen Stock a lot and her treatment of the hands of her fellow philosophers. And I'm very critical of certain trends in philosophy as far as the topic of sex and gender goes and the apparent willingness of many philosophers to close off debate and cancel the dissidents and the heretics. So those are the two things where the two bits of the book where tone could have been an issue. And anyway, the editor made some helpful remarks about changes of wording and I accommodated them or I accommodated 90% of them. I was very happy happy to do that. I realized that in some places I probably was over-editorializing, and letting my own opinions come through rather than letting the words of my opponents speak for themselves. And that's, it's often much more effective just to give your opponents enough rope to hang themselves with rather than jumping in explicitly co- condemning them. So I'd, I'd already shown myself more than willing to make adjustments, but still it was no use. And that came on the heels of Holly Lawford Smith's troubles with Oxford University Press. There was a big fuss over her first book. OUP cancelled her second book, which was, again, under contract on the completely spurious ground that it was too similar to to the first book. And now OUP is publishing her second book, but that was only because Holly appealed to the UK's free speech union and they threatened OUP. Now OUP is publishing the book. This is ridiculous. Have you ever heard of such a thing? A university press essentially being forced to publish an academic's book. And then there are various other things that I detail in the in the Quillette essay. Oh, I should say, and you could always link to this in the show notes, a pseudonymous philosopher at Oxford wrote, Oxford University wrote a follow-up piece for Quillette after this 500 comment thread appeared on Daily News about my about my book cancellation, 
that was, I thought was a very good article, made some excellent points. One point the author made was that the discussion on the subsequent discussion on the philosophy blogs after I wrote that article was all about me. It was not about Holly at all, or hardly. hardly. Holly was mentioned just a handful of times. But really what happened to Holly was much worse than what than what happened to me. And in, in any case, in it all worked out fine for me. I'm certainly not I'm certainly not complaining. It was excellent publicity, in fact. There's nothing like a sort of soft cancellation to drum up interest in one's books. And my book, which is called Trouble with Gender, Sex Facts, Gender Fictions, is coming out in October to be published by Polity Press, which is a relatively small but very well-regarded press in the in the UK. So it's not, it's certainly not about me. I'm not complaining. It's the serious issue is just the general climate in the profession. And in particular, the fact that if you're a junior philosopher who work, who's interested in these topics, and they are of like genuine interest, it's not some, obviously, it's not some dry academic exercise like the, the correct axioms of myriology or something, but these are issues which affect the lives of many people, then you would be well advised to steer clear of this topic unless you could be absolutely sure that you will only come to the approved correct conclusions. So there are hardly any people working on this topic now who... Who, who are arguing for faintly heterodox views, and it's it's just not surprising. But it's very disappointing, particularly given the general ethos in philosophy that everything is up for debate, anything can be questioned, sometimes almost deeply held assumptions turn out to be wrong. 